Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you enjoy this show, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, where you will receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com to subscribe. All content and episodes are intended for informational entertainment purposes and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Noah Gray, co-founder and CEO of Onda. Onda is a sparkling tequila brand famously co-founded by Shay Mitchell. I discussed with Noah how Onda came to be, how Shay became involved, the intersection of celebrity of consumer, especially in regards to alcohol, his fundraising and retail strategy, and a lot, a lot more. Lots to unpack here. Without further ado, here's Noah. Noah, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Mike, great to see you. Very happy to be here and doing really well. Enjoying a, a very busy summer for Onda, but um, uh, happy to take a little time to you know chat with you and, and share a little bit about our, our story here. I'm sure. Congrats on all your success with Onda and as well just in life in general. That's, um, that's amazing. Thank you. Let's start from the beginning. How did you end up in the beverage space and what attracted you to create a tequila brand? Uh, I guess it starts in the early part of my career. After college, I was working in innovation and design consulting, mostly with consumer companies. And this was consumer across a bunch of different categories, but a lot in in food and beverage. I think what kind of drew me to the space early on was just some of the storytelling opportunities you have in consumer and in brand building, which I really loved. Um, I was a humanities major in college, and I felt like it was kind of a good intersection of some of those interests and then a sort of a career path that I could see myself following. So I was consulting uh, in the space, had some clients who were in beverage alcohol. That was my first exposure to tequila and in this industry. And then uh, went back to business school, met a a co-founder in business school, and um, we had some shared uh, past experience in alcohol. And we saw a really specific um, opportunity, which I'm happy to tell you a little bit more about kind of how we identified that opportunity. And and that was that's kind of where Onda came to be. But I think it just sort of started with that love of, of brand building and um, products that are really a part of people's everyday lives. That's always been very satisfying to me. So what was the insight that led you to, to Onda that you saw in the alcohol space specifically? Yeah, so there were a couple of trends that I was you know, really interested in going back to this sort of 2018, 2019, better for you broadly as a trend has been so disruptive across virtually every food and beverage category. Um, beverage alcohol, I think, was a little bit, a little slower to adopt some of these characteristics. It's an indulgent category. It's not good for you, but there are certainly ways that these products can be a better fit into kind of a healthier lifestyle. So I was interested broadly in better for you drinking. And in that better for you space, you start to see um, kind of the emergence of malt-based hard seltzers in 2018. The insight I think that we had was, well, these products are great. They, you know, check a lot of boxes, kind of affordable, uh, broadly better for you in that they're lower calorie, lower alcohol. The insight we had was that, well, okay, that's fine, but these products exist more or less in the mass market. There was not really a premium trade-up option in hard seltzer at that point in time. And we thought, okay, well, that's really interesting. There's so much growth in the alcohol industry happening at the premium tier. Now you've got this new category of beverages that are decidedly mass market. Well, who's going to be the premium leader in this space? And what would make a brand or a product premium? And that's where we started to look at spirit-based seltzers and spirit-based RTDs as a kind of primary differentiator and quickly identified tequila as really exciting to us. 
Um, not only is there just a rich history um, and storytelling opportunities around tequila, it's also been the fastest growing spirit base, uh, you know, mature spirit in the U.S. for many, many years now. You know, we've had about a, a decades-long run of just tremendous growth in tequila. And so we thought a product at the intersection of seltzer and tequila could be really compelling, a premium option that seltzer drinkers could graduate up into. And that's what we started chasing in early 2019. So once you were able to identify this opportunity in the category, I know that you said the why you fell in love initially with consumer brands was due to the storytelling opportunity. And I agree, that's why I love covering consumer brands. How did you also think about the brand side of things? Since it seems like on the product side, you at least had an idea um, at this point, you knew which category at least you wanted to create a product in. What was your approach to the storytelling side and your brand positioning? An early kind of step in that direction was bringing in a third co-founder in the business. Uh, her name is Kelly Adams. She's our chief creative officer. And Kelly and I worked together uh, at some of these design agencies, you know, kind of years, years prior. And so she was able to add to our founding team this great um, creative sensibility and brand expertise. And we were young founders, you know, we're all kind of early, early 30s. And I think we were inspired by a couple of things, a little bit of this kind of millennial nostalgia for the 90s. And there is a nostalgic um, vibe to the on the brand where you know, we're, we're very inspired by some of these sort of surf and skate brands from, uh, from the 90s and from our childhood. And then for Kelly, uh, she's based in Southern California. And I think she just took a lot of inspiration for the visual language of our brand from Southern California living in beach culture. And so those two things kind of came together and we developed this story around the brand that's a little retro, a little SoCal, a little Miami. And I think it's been a great fit with the use sort of use case use cases for Onda and this light, fun, uh, refreshing um, product that we have. Love that. So I guess going back to the initial opportunity that you saw within a better for you alcohol, even though alcohol is an indulgence, but a better for you kind of tequila seltzer, which was you know a very new category. But was the plan to always offer a product that had zero sugar and you know a lot less carbs, or was it the consumer really like asking, or the market kind of going that way already that you felt it necessary to start? with a SKU that offered zero sugar and carbs? I think it's a lot of where the market is in general going. And uh, we were benchmarking against other products that were seeing success. I think you kind of have two things going on. You have one consumers, you know, maybe like myself or yourself, who are perhaps getting a little bit older and, and thinking a little bit more, okay, you know, how do I still enjoy social occasions and indulge a little bit, but without kind of going to sort of a point of excess. And so kind of like having a lower alcohol content, a lower sugar content is, is really important there. And then I think you have a new generation of drinkers, kind of your, your Gen Z drinkers who are coming of legal drinking age, who are just much more health conscious to begin with and seeking, you know, kind of more, more moderation where drinking culture, this is, this is going to be a bit of a generalization, but I think in the past, there has certainly been drinking cultures that were really oriented around escape and maybe kind of historically, that's what the nightclub was about, just kind of an escape from your daily life. And I think we're in a period of time that's a little bit more oriented around enhancement. So I'm not drinking to escape. I'm just drinking to enhance and enjoy a social occasion that I'm already having, a little more daytime versus nighttime. And and so, you know, kind of in this in, environment, I think that's the ones we, we look through. It's like, what qualities do I want in a product that I'm enjoying that in that way? 
so lower lower sugar, lower alcohol, lower carbs were all part of all part of the strategy. So that was kind of the initial, I guess, opportunity that you saw as well, right? It was. And then it's just how do you take that and how do you make it premium and exciting? There's a, a rip. And, and delicious. Yeah, and still delicious. Because there's a risk when you start trying to develop products that are kind of about what you're leaving out of the drink or out of the whatever food product. I mean, what's the, the risk is you make a product that, yeah, as, as you said, it doesn't, just doesn't taste very good. Like this, this is the, the, big, the big concern. So how do you get something that also really tastes good and is really affirmative about like all the good stuff that's in it, not just kind of the calories or carbs that you're, um, you're leaving out? This is something that we also talk about on the show a lot. There's many celebrities and athletes wanting to be associated with a consumer product, ranging from you know beverage to cosmetics and what have you, and food. But how did you partner, or how did Shay Mitchell become um, part of the brand, and what has she done for the brand? Do you believe, beside for her, you know, overall, you know, social media reach or, or responsibilities? We connected with Shay really early, prior to launching the business, kind of in the formative stages. Uh, there was an individual who became an investor in our business who was connected to Shay, who, who introduced us again when we were still kind of exploring this space. And Shay's incredible. I mean, she is, in her own right, a very accomplished actress with you know, a phenomenal on-screen career. She used that as a jumping off point to build this really impressive and vibrant social media community on her own channels. And then she's had several businesses that she's been a part of, um, sort of most notably prior to Onda, a luggage business called Base. And I think she really understands what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And she was, I think, at that point, casually looking at opportunities in, in kind of similar spaces as us. We connected early on, had a good kind of personal rapport, and I think shared interest in this better for you drinking opportunity and made the decision to kind of co-found the business together. She is our chief brand officer, so she's you know primarily focused on how do you build you know the brand story and world around Onda and community building around Onda. And there's a component of that that is you know her own community, which has been really supportive of Onda from the outset. I think really helped us get off the ground. So that's you know sort of tremendously valuable. But then also in guiding you know kind of internal strategy and, and thinking about how do you create a, a product and br- a brand that appeals to this consumer that she's so intimately familiar with from, you know, kind of her own community building. And so that's been very valuable as well. And, and then we think, you know, there's a lot of examples of successful, you know, more successful and less successful celebrity partnerships. I think the less successful ones tend to be the kind that are more like a IP licensing deal where you just kind of license the image and the face we had no interest on either side, no interest in doing that. And so you'll see Shay herself in some of our uh, marketing materials, but not in that capacity. And I think what we've found has resonated most with like, you know, her community and even our early believers is Shay can help provide a window kind of backstage to, okay, like, let me see inside the meeting as a marketing campaign is being developed or as we're doing product development. I think that's been some of the best content that we've produced, early taste tests. And she's just a great sort of guide and storyteller, like, you know, come behind the scenes with me of building these businesses that I'm a part of. Um, and I think that kind of that sort of authenticity is really, is, is really like felt and, and also just consumers have a very high, um, high bar for kind of BS at this point. So I think you have to, you know, you kind of have to operate that way or, or it's just, it's just not going to work. Any other thoughts around or pieces of advice for founders who might want to partner with talent or someone that's a 
That's a celebrity. I think the biggest thing is when you're having those first meetings or conversations, you have to be looking for, proactively looking for and signaling that you want a partner who wants to be an entrepreneur and knows what that means. Not someone who's looking, my, this is you know my two cents here, not someone who's just interested in an endorsement deal. Those deals could be great, but I think for startup founders building businesses, you need a partner if you're going to go this route who understands the kind of work um, that it requires and some of the unglamorous work it requires and is willing to do that and is excited by it. It's my biggest, that's my biggest piece of advice of advice. Yeah. And not just like, Hey, let's like post on social media and I have this, you know, cr- uh, great reach and you know, this is how we can, um, move the needle, you know, maybe that will work from the onset, but if they have equity, if they're really invested, um, it has to be like a long-term relationship with actually a plan to how they can actually be involved in the company and actually make sure that the company is shaped to, for them as well. How did you approach formulating? I love asking this question because I hear so many great stories about how, uh, like I had on Ouroboros, for example, and they just had like a party and they and they had everyone, all their friends test taste um, their flavors and then they kind of figured out which ones were good and which ones weren't good. Funnily enough, the the founder of Ouroboros, the flavor that he loved the most, everyone hated. So they, they, they ended up doing it. But like, let's like kind of know how you thought about you know doing that initial market research and people actually being able to try your flavors in terms of what actually would stuck uh, as your initial product. Yeah, there are probably two things going on a little bit in parallel. There was a strategy side of picking flavors, and then there was the actual formulation and development. Um, you know, on the strategy side, first, um, we were pretty intentional that we were going after large um, national flavor categories. And we looked at syndicated data and said, okay, in seltzer, what are the big popular flavor categories? And then we also sort of cross-referenced that against popular tequila cocktail flavors. So it was this Venn diagram, you know, what's popular with hard seltzer, what goes well organically with tequila, and then within that Venn diagram, what are the largest addressable market sizes? And so that was pretty just analytical, you know, from, from, from the beginning and, and a little less romance. But I also think, you know, it's, it's, you have to like, you have to be pretty, you know, kind of like honest with yourself about what you're, what you're going after, you know, maybe the most interesting bartender mixology flavors like they might taste great but uh if you're just kind of locking yourself into a very narrow addressable market you know you just have to be careful about the kind of business model that you're you're sort of going to uh develop so that was a kind of the strategy side and then on the actual formulation side you know it's a constant in my opinion it's it's sort of like a constant game of uh continuous improvement um we have made ongoing updates to our flavors. We are not particularly precious about locking into one final formulation. We had sort of version one flavors. Some of the first taste testing that we did was, um, you know, back in in business school. Um, I think my co-founder Max and I, we got a couple of gift certificates to a local coffee shop, like literally, you know, 10 or $15 gift certificates and just said, hey, like, come, you know, come by, taste and flavors, give us feedback. We'll give you a gift certificate for a coffee down the down the road. And that's how we collected early feedback on flavors. And then our own team did a lot of internal taste testing. And then we started, you know, developing real product and getting feedback from consumers. And I think this is, you know, one of the best ways, you know, to get honest feedback. When you're doing it with friends and family, there's a lot of bias um, at play. When you're actually kind of testing with retailers and selling and out in the you know, kind of the real world, that's when you start to get pretty honest and direct feedback. And buyers and consumers will tell you 
um, what they like, what they don't like. They're you know pretty unforgiving. And so we incorporate that feedback on an ongoing basis and have continued to evolve the formulations, the flavors, the juices that we're using, the tequila that we're using. And I think our product just keeps getting better. I know um, as an entrepreneur, there's obviously times of doubt and also times, but always it's kind of this back believing that this is going to work, right? That this is going to become um, a viable business, is going to become a great business and, and, and be a success. But was there a moment that you might have reached where you're like, hey, this is actually starting to resonate with consumers? Yeah, it's really, it's tough. I think in, in the case of Onda, we had a huge amount of conviction in the market opportunity. You know, we kind of looked out into the world and said, well, we see people drinking tequila soda in the real world all the time. It is, uh, you know, sort of became this dominant bar order, at least in my social life in New York, and it had been for several years. So I know people are drinking this. And then you look at the ready to drink space and you say, well, okay. And, and people are drinking hard seltzer, but why isn't anyone drinking, you know, kind of a prepackaged or ready to drink a really like convenient tequila soda? It just wasn't there. And that just kept staring me in the face. And I think that like very simple reality, I just like, I couldn't shake. I'm like, someone, someone is going to make this product. You know, you drink it at the bar, you drink these seltzers. Why can't I get the tequila seltzer? That's going to happen. So like intellectually, I had a huge amount of conviction and I think our whole team did. And then for the specific, you know, product and brand that is Onda, you know, maybe the moment, sort of the first real moment was when we got distributors to to sign on. I think, you know, as a early stage founder, I mean, this is a great, it's just a great test. Like you might think you have the best idea in the world, but like, can you get someone to, to buy? Like, can you literally get someone to buy it and sign like a, like a serious contract with you to support the brand? Um, and we got that in New York. We had some early kind of exploratory meetings with distributors and they're, you know, brutally honest. But we met with distributors both in Connecticut and New York. And I mean, we were just like sort of shocked. We went in with glass bottle samples and a deck. And the outcome of the meeting was like, oh, yeah, like, here's our standard contract. When you've got cans, we're ready to go. And that was awesome. That was like really, really awesome. And that's also, I think, what gave us the conviction to go and kind of raise our, our first round of, of real financing. How did you approach raising capital as well? Because it seemed, because I know you've raised now, what, like 17 million? For the space, it seems like it's quite a lot of money compared to some of your competitors. So what was your approach to raising capital? Why did you decide eventually to raise that amount that you did in multiple rounds? And how do you think about fundraising overall? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a really important topic to, to be thoughtful about. And I, I know it represents a big hurdle for a lot of early stage founders and entrepreneurs and it can even be quite intimidating to go out and, and raise serious capital. I guess at the early, you know, sort of changes, the successive rounds, the considerations change. I'll start with some of the early, early stage stuff. I think in the very beginning, the way I think about starting a business and the way we kind of approach starting Onda, you're really putting together this machine. Like businesses are composed of multiple parts that need to work together to produce a result. And it's kind of analytical. And we try to construct as many parts of that machine as possible prior to raising money. And you can think of it almost as a, you know, sort of a flow chart. Like, okay, if, if I want to produce a tequila seltzer into market, what needs to be in place? What needs to be true? So we started with, we need a supply of tequila, you know, step one, where's the tequila coming from? And so we went to Mexico, we met with a bunch of distilleries, we formed a partnership, 
with a great distillery who supplies our tequila, who we launched with. Okay, you know, we've got a tequila source. What is, where are we going to package this? Where are we going to actually can it? So we found a, you know, a contract uh, manufacturer kind of locally um, who had capacity and the capabilities to make these types of products. And we formed an early relationship with a co-packer. Okay, we've got tequila. We have a co-packer. We have a sort of a loose formulation at this point. What does the thing look like? You know, that's where the branding and design came in, the work that we were doing. Kelly was really leading on the graphic design and, and packaging design side. Um, we made a lot of headway on that um, prior prior to raising money. And so at some point we had, you know, kind of these glass bottle samples that I mentioned, and we had the branding and we had the tequila supply and the co-packing. And that's when we had these meetings that I just mentioned with distributors. And it was like, well, we've got the stuff. Can we sort of, can we sell this? Can we get it into market? And we started just you know, door to door, talking to some local bars, restaurants, liquor stores, retailers in our area, distributors in New York and Connecticut, and had that kind of a couple great meetings where they said, you know, yes, like when you're ready, we're ready to go. So at this point, the supply chain was in order. The formulation was more or less done. The branding and design was done. And we had distributors and retailers ready to go. And so then when you go and you kind of consider raising money, You've got all of this work and, you know, so many parts of the machine are, are in place. I think that's a really compelling way to pitch someone. And capital, it's like, you know, it's like gasoline for a car. On its own, it's, it's sort of useless. You know, you can have as much of it as you want, but if there's nowhere to deploy it, what good, you know, what good is it? And, and that's, you know, what investors are looking for. They're saying, you know, how do I deploy this capital in a way that's efficient and in a way that's going to generate a return? Um, and I think we were able to tell a really compelling story about this machine we had set up and all the ways we de-risk the investment. And it was just like, look, we're ready to go. We need to go run production and then support, um, you know, a local sales team and some activation to test, you know, to really test this thing. And we set out uh, the very first pitch deck that we put together. We plan to raise, you know, maybe $200,000 for a local market test. And we started talking to investors and we'd done so much work, even just, you know, to try to raise that 200, I think the interest kind of kept building and we ended up raising 1.2 million um, for the local launch. Um, and I think that was directly a result of kind of the upfront work that we had done. And I, I also want to say, you know, sort of upfront work that did not require a lot of investment. You know, we're talking about maybe $10,000 to get, um, you know, to get that far. That's amazing. I know one of your very early supporters and who's also um, a, a big investor in your company, Clayton Christopher, who is probably on my Mount Rushmore for, for beverage entrepreneurs and investors. I mean, it's unbelievable how much he's accomplished. Why did Clayton kind of fall in love with the brand? I know there's like a couple quotes out there about um, how much he loves Onda. From your experience from very, very early on, what did Clayton, you know, love about your brand, why he invested, and as well as what have you learned from him along the way? Yeah, Clayton's been huge um, part of our story, a great advisor to our team, um, and just uh, you know, a tremendous believer in the business. It's really been a privilege to be able to uh, to work so closely with him. You know, I can't I can't really speak for him as to to what he saw, but my thoughts are that one, I think he really shared our conviction in the market opportunity that long term spirit based RTDs will play a large role in beverage alcohol. And that tequila-based uh, RTDs are a really exciting place um, to play in. And that tequila seltzer was this kind of natural uh, natural fit for strategics and for consumers. 
And so he could really see that opportunity. I think second, Clayton's a brand guy. He's done phenomenal jobs stewarding a number of great consumer brands. And he think I think he saw a lot of potential in the way that Onda was set up from a brand and marketing perspective. And I think that won him over really early. And then, um, you know, probably third, our, our team. I think we have, you know, a really nice professional working relationship with him. We're a young team of entrepreneurs. We were really open and excited to learn from him. You know, I'd like to think we approach our business with a lot of uh, self-awareness and intellectual honesty and integrity. And I think these are all things that he really models and cares about as well. Uh, and so I think that was probably the third, the third piece of the equation for him. And it's been, I mean, it's been fantastic, uh, fantastic to learn from him. I think I could share, you know, some, some lessons that he's, that he's shared, uh, if that would, if that'd be helpful. The biggest one that I think about a lot, and it's, you know, a real refrain for him. This is not a, a groundbreaking lesson, but it's powerful. It's the importance of putting the business first. Always, what is in the best long-term interest of the company. And it's really difficult, I think, especially when you're a founder. It's so personal. Everything feels so personal. You identify with your company on an almost one-to-one basis. And I see this, you know, in other friends who are founders. I felt it really acutely myself. It's like the line between Noah and Anda feels so thin. I don't know that that's necessarily a mistake. And I think that being really personally invested and passionate about your business is important. But at some point, you also have to take a step back and recognize the difference and say, okay, when I'm making decisions about people or strategy or products or any type of capital planning, what am I optimizing for? Is it the individual or is it the company? And the answer always has to be the company. And that's something that he's helped me really sort of internalize and understand. And then I think a second thing, much more just tactically, the value of margins. (laughs) Uh, You will never encounter a more passionate uh, person about the importance of uh, product and gross margins uh, than Clayton Christopher and the extent to which the margin really is a reflection of the value you can create. And so I would say, uh, just as a, a word of advice to all young founders, do not do not neglect your margins because it is very difficult to create value in this industry with subscale margins. And you need to focus on that as much as your revenue momentum and, and sales growth. That's that's the sexy stuff that we're all talking about, you know, what's your run rate or, you know, what what sort of volume are you doing, but do not neglect your margins. So those are my, my two from Clayton. I really appreciate that, those two pieces of advice, putting your business first as well as, you know, don't neglect um, margins. It reminds me when I talked to, I had Wayne Wu on the show and, and he was saying how it starts with margins um, and just, just couldn't overemphasize enough how important margins are for any any food and beverage business, any consumer brand, really. I mean, obviously, maybe, maybe more generally business in general. How did you approach distribution from the beginning in terms of different sales channels? I know when I did talk to Clayton, um, when he spoke at my summit, he talked about how the importance of focusing on make sure you have really great velocities rather than trying to kind of go into every channel from the get-go or all over the U.S. from the get-go. Instead, focus just on really high velocities, and it could be even a small region that's that's more powerful. But would love to kind of learn how you think about distribution velocity, and also, since you've raised quite a bit of capital, how that capital is being deployed into into distribution as well? It's a great question, and there's also a balancing act here. Uh, you know, when we launched Onda and first came to market, there was, to some extent, a land grab in tequila-based RTDs, and there is some value to securing some of these distribution contracts, being, you know, 
first or very early to market, getting mindshare and, and kind of blocking, you know, there's a blocking strategy here, blocking some of the upstarts. Um, there are a lot of small brands in our space and we were mindful of not wanting to kind of cede territory to some of the other um, kind of upstart uh, new, you know, sort of newcomers that we saw. So there was a little bit of that to kind of a quick national expansion for Onda. And then you combine that with just some great chain, distribu- chain distribution that we had really early on that drove us to, to new markets. At the same time, we have been very focused and very clear from the outset around what our kind of top focus geographies in markets are. And for the business currently, you know, we're really focused on Florida, on California, and on Illinois. And that's where a disproportionate share of our marketing and sales dollars go, our headcount goes. And now we're just paying like, you know, quite close attention to really building a brand in these markets while having, um, you know, organic availability and, and repeat in some of the second sort of tier two and tier three markets. That's great. But I think the shift in focus for us now is, is creating some volume and, and some scale in those focus markets for us. That's really helpful. Um, really helpful. What's maybe the most non-obvious thing you've learned since, since founding Nanda? <laughs> it's a good, good question. A tough one. One of the like, you know, I think sort of like unexpected challenges of, of Onda is that we work in a regulated industry. To some extent, I think it's easy to, to forget that alcohol, I mean, it's sort of omnipresent, but it is quite different than other consumer, consumer industries. Um, and I, I think I was a little surprised at the outset at just how different the ecosystems are for beverage alcohol and other consumer products. I think a lot of that does have to do with um, being in a regulated environment. You know, for spirit-based RTDs, we face a unique set of kind of regulatory challenges around federal and state taxes. Um, Where we can sell and distribute the product varies at the state level, state by state. In some markets like Florida and California, we can sell in grocery. In others like, you know, New York, where, where I live, Grocery is completely unavailable to us. And then even if you look at the kind of funding ecosystem, you know, different, like sort of the VC, I would say the VC ecosystem for consumer products is actually not particularly well aligned to funding beverage alcohol startups. You have a lot of funds who have LPs um, who might have vice clauses. And it's, it's funny, you know, like a 5% ABV seltzer can get excluded because of vice clauses because it's uh, alcoholic and treated like tobacco or firearms. And then you also have to deal with Tidehouse laws, um, which have to do with restrictions over um, being an equity owner in both in retail, like a restaurant that retails liquor, and then a supplier like Onda, a brand. So I think navigating that difficulty has been sort of an unexpected challenge. Uh, but it's also part of why I think there was opportunity in the space. You know, where there's regulation, there may be higher barriers to entry. And so if you can work your way in and, and sort of work through those challenges, that then becomes uh, a moat around your business on, on the other side. Also, opportunity then for investors, right? Since many of them have have vice classes, and so I'd imagine that there's less supply of capital per se than in other categories because of some of the vice classes issues that you run into. That's exactly right. How do you think about your approach to competition within the tequila seltzer space? There may be, as as you suggested, a low-ish barrier to formulating an onda. Like I'm under no illusions that you could take, uh, you know, tequila, soda, water, and some fruit juice and put it in a can. That's not the hard part, right? Like at all, you know, that's so the barriers to entry um, have to do with a whole host of other kind of other factors. And for Onda in the way we think about competition and building the business, you know, we have tried to assemble as many 
um, barriers and competitive advantages as we can. And you can look in different areas of the business at what those are. On the brand and marketing side, having a partner like Shea Mitchell gives us a disproportionate uh, reach for the size business that we are. Um, and that's an advantage. On the commercial side of the business, we have these great, as I mentioned before, network relationships with two of the three largest beverage alcohol distributors. That's a difficult relationship to compete against. And they're not going to form many of those with directly competitive products. We have an excellent sales leadership uh, and sales team and have invested very heavily in that with a real industry veteran, uh, Tom Schlockenhofen, who joined us recently as president and chief commercial officer, an excellent vice president of sales from Cutwater Spirits, um, and then some really industry-leading investors and industry veterans uh, like Clayton, who, who we've talked about. Our board chairman, uh, who joined us uh, when we raised our Series A round, is Jim Clerken. He was formerly the CEO of Moet Hennessy. Before that, he ran Jim Beam, Allied Domecq, was at Diageo for many, many years. You know, that's another really important strategic relationship that is, uh, you know, not, you know, it's ir- irreplicable for another business. And then there's, you know, some amount of the financing uh, trajectory uh, that Onda has been on. You know, at this stage, we're two years in, we're distributed in 32, 33 states, great distribution relationships, as I mentioned before, we've raised $18.5 million of equity capital. You know, if I was looking at this space and saying, is there still an opportunity in tequila-based seltzer as a new founder, I would look somewhere else, you know, because Onda's here. So it is the case that there are smaller, you know, kind of ankle biter brands regionally in different markets. I suspect what happens over the next two years is a lot of consolidation. You know, there's kind of a rush into this space as hard seltzer heated up. A lot of small brands raise a little bit of capital. I think that field thins out and there'll be a few national brands that emerge as winners. And I believe we'll be one of them. And it's going to be interesting to see how the next kind of phase of this fourth category evolves. But I don't think you'll see this number of of small brands that we have now. Um, The consumer just does not need 80 different hard seltzer options. You know, you need you need a few with a few points of difference, and that's what we're focused on. What is one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? I'll take the professional one first. A book that I, I love to sort of refer to, refer people to, is a book by one of my professors in business school, who is Barry Nailbuff, one of the founders of Honesty, uh, and that's Mission in a Bottle. I mean, it's a very lighthearted uh, sort of graphic novel, but it tells the story of Seth and Barry getting that business off the ground and. As a beverage founder myself, I loved going through it. Some of the lessons they learned and the unconventional ways they approached, uh, you know, kind of starting and building their business while also in a very principled way. So I love referring people to, uh, to Mission in the Bottle by, by Barry. Um, and then on, uh, I guess on the personal front, you know, I'm a big kind of uh, movie guy. I like, I love going to, to the movies and seeing films. So I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a movie uh, that I saw recently at the end of last year. Um, one of my favorite directors is Paul Thomas Anderson. And he had a, a new movie called Licorice Pizza come out end of last year. It's about some sort of young kids in Southern California, um, kind of combination of falling in love and, and then just starting all kinds of kind of harebrained businesses. Um, one of them is he's an actor. Um, he makes commercials. He starts selling pinball machines. He starts selling water beds. But, you know, who, who knows where that, that career goes, but this is like a, a film that kind of celebrates the hustle and and shows you kind of it's like never too early to get started on on you know whatever scheme or 
or vision you have. I just, I really loved it. And it's probably the, the best movie I've seen in the last year. So would encourage people to check that one out. Licorice Pizza. I'm glad you brought up both these. I haven't seen Licorice Pizza yet, but um, I definitely need to. Huge Mission the Bottle fan. I, I recently had Seth on the show and he's just um, amazing. And so um, that's and that's also incredible that you're able to study under Barry. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs? Okay, good, good question. Biggest piece of advice, if you're looking to get started, find a co-founder. That is when things get real, in my opinion. I think it is just too difficult to do it alone. So find a co-founder. And then the next thing I would do is start a newsletter. Um, These two things will create accountability in your personal life, which is just really important. Like if you want to go from idea to reality, get someone else to believe in your idea, and then start telling everyone whose opinion you care about that you're doing it, because then you will feel incredible social pressure to make some progress. We did that. It really helped us. And so I would encourage everyone uh, to do, you know, kind of those two things. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Because it obviously keeps yourself accountable and also make sure that you're consistent in terms of uh, taking that idea to the next level that you're able to actually uh, execute on it. Noah, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun chatting with you. Thanks, Mike. Really, uh, really enjoyed it. Glad, glad to be on the podcast. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. And there you have it. It was incredible chatting with Noah. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.